speak no evil. How many of you have ever seen the little little statues or little carvings with the see no evil, hear no evil, uh, speak no evil? Yeah. Seen those? Familiar with them? At least you've seen them, right? You've heard them referenced in culture. How many of you know where the origin of those are, or at least an idea as to where the origin of those little statues came from? Italy. Huh? Italy? Rome? Uh, not Rome. Europe? No? No. All right. Um, the origin is uh, from Buddhist tradition, okay? That, that shocked me. I was, you know, looking at the text um, and trying to put everything together, and it's like, you know, the, the idea of speak no evil is really the theme of the passage, and that's interesting that there is this common phrase that we are all aware of, um, and it's not like a new phrase, because Bob Dole used it. How many of you remember when Bob Dole used it? All right. Some of you don't remember. He said, um, hear no evil, speak no evil, um, see no evil, speak no evil. And then he said, um, he said a couple presidents' names, and he was implying that one of the presidents was just evil. Okay. Um, now, I'm not trying to engage you with whether or not you think his assessment of the situation was right, but it's a common phrase. And what does the phrase really communicate? Why should you, if you were to just look at the guidance apart from any outside influence, why should you seek to live your life in such a way that you see no evil? In such a way that you hear no evil? In such a way that you speak no evil? Why should that consume any amount of your time? Really, I, I think the only way that you could understand this, is, apart from the, the doctrine or the truth of Christianity, is in some way that promotes your own advancement, right? Why else would you, why else would you in so strict a way, avoid all forms of evil? Every, every other religious system tells us what? We earn something by what? By doing something. That is, the, that is the foundational groundwork of every religious system that you and I can come into contact with, except for true Christianity. Which says, instead, you could never do enough to earn righteousness. That's why God offers it to you as a free Gift. And then we live in response to what we have been given. And so, speak no evil. But why do we speak no evil? Well, James has been developing this idea for a while, right? If, if you remember with me, if you've tracked with us for a while, we've been going through James. In James chapter 1, what does James do? He introduces us to this idea that you and I should be doers of the word and not simply hearers, right? What he's getting at is you and I must live out our faith. It's not enough for you and I to gather together corporately and to proclaim to one another to reassure ourselves within our little club that, yes, this is what we believe, and then we go out next week and we do anything we want, right? James is insistent in James chapter 1 that you and I must be doers of the word. He moves on in James chapter 2, and he says what? He says, look at... Abraham, look at Rahab. They lived out their faith. Their faith worked, right? It changed how they lived day to day. 
Abraham understood that God had promised something. He believed that promise. And so while he has his ups and downs, we talked about that a little bit this morning in Sunday school, right? While he had his ups and downs, he was pursuing obedience to God. Rahab hears about God's promises to the nation of Israel. And what does she do? Even though she's a prostitute from a different nation, she's not an Israelite, she has opportunity to engage the children of Israel. And what does she do? She lives by faith and does what most of us would look at and say, that was really stupid because if she got caught doing that, she and her whole family would be executed by the king of Jericho. And so she, she lives by faith. In James chapter 3, James begins a new conversation. If you look with me at James chapter 3, you'll see he begins this conversation of the tongue. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. He then goes on, and he talks about the fact that we all sin in verse 2. Verse 3, he begins to talk about the tongue once again. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by even a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. What does he go on and he says? He says the tongue can't be controlled. As he ends that section, it almost looks like he's done talking about the tongue. He moves into a conversation of heavenly wisdom versus demonic wisdom. And what does he compare and contrast the two with? He says the primary thing that you will see in worldly or demonic wisdom is pride and an advancement of yourself. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, he continues to de describe that. And he says, once again, the problem is self-seeking. And that's where wars and fights come from among you. Among you being the church of God. Why do churches have squabbles? Why do members not get together? Why do members, you know, not want to go to that person's house? He says it's because of our desires, our passions, that war in our members, the war in us. And now he's going to return once again to this topic of the tongue. And he's really building on the same idea. That pride and my pursuits of my own desires, my advancements of my own agenda, is a source of problems. And it's demonstrated itself in numerous ways. He's going to continue to describe some of those in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5. He continues to describe how our arrogance, our pride, demonstrates itself. But right now, he's concluding this idea of how we speak. And I think if you were to summarize what he says, he says it in a negative command, right? We use negative commands often. That's how I normally address my daughter, right? It's probably how you normally address your children. Don't do that. That's a negative command, right? That's, that's what we do, like... Don't touch the CD player. Eliana, don't touch the CD player. This happened to Bethany yesterday. Don't touch the CD player, girls. And they decided to touch it one more time, and what happens? Eliana sticks her finger underneath the CD player case lid, and, and Stacia decides to shut it, and then both of them are screaming, right? All right? It's a negative command. But if we we're going to state the command that he gives us in James chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, positively, what would it look like? 
I think the idea is something like this. We pursue heavenly wisdom through faithful, loving speech. We pursue heavenly wisdom through faithful, loving speech. If you would, uh, turn with me to James chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. Let's read through it, and then I'll seek to develop for you why I'm bringing out this idea of love and faithfulness as we work our way through the passage. Because as we read through it, you're going to notice that he doesn't talk about faithfulness in the passage directly with that word. He doesn't use the word loving. And the command that he gives us as we think about how we use our speech is a negatively stated command. It's the do not touch the CD player command. It's not go play with your toys command. It's not stated positively. It's, it's a negative command. But I think you can state it positively, and I think that's where James wants us to get. It's not enough for us to just avoid negative speech. I think the ultimate result of following through on this command is that we will result in positive speech towards one another, speech that is faithful and loving as we point one another to our great God, the one who provides us with all good gifts, the one who is a source of heavenly, godly wisdom. This is such stark contrast to worldly wisdom that pursues the satisfaction of my own desires and breeds wars and fights among us. James chapter 4, verse 11 through 12. Do not speak evil of one another, brother. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is clear, that your word provides us with guidance for the situations that we face in this life. Your word teaches us how we are to relate to one another. Your word guides us. We pray that as we spend some minutes this morning contemplating what James chapter 4, verses 11 through 12 means for how we relate to one another, you would encourage our hearts as we see where we are we are succeeding and following this, and that you would use your word to rebuke us and call us to conformity to your Son as we see errors in how we think and how we speak with one another. In your name we pray. Amen. Use your tongue wisely. I've stated the command positively, but he states it negatively, right? He, he tells us, do not speak evil of one another. And the command you have to say relates not to how you speak to your neighbors. It doesn't relate to necessarily how you speak to your family, so much as your family is not a part of a local assembly, right? It speaks primarily to how you and I relate to one another. It's, it's talking about the local community of believers. It's talking about the local church. And if you remember, the historical context for the book of James is what? James is a local church pastor in Jerusalem. What's happened? James chapter 1, early verses tell us what? There has been a trial that has come in, and as the trial has come in, what's happened? The people have dispersed. They've moved to different parts of the world. Why? Because the trials were really bad in Jerusalem. And so now James is writing to his former church members, people that he loves and he has a desire to see growing and becoming more like Jesus. And as he's hearing things, a lot of what he's hearing isn't good. It's not in alignment with what he's taught them. 
he's talking about godly wisdom. He's talking about worldly demonic wisdom. He's talking about the importance of being doers of the word, of being people who walk by faith, who have faith that works its way out in the everyday of life. And as he's receiving reports from the church, what's he hearing reports of? It appears that James chapter 4, verses 11 through 12 would lead us to believe that the reports he's hearing is of evil speaking within the church that's gone out from him. And so he hears about this evil speaking, and it's demonstrating itself in different ways. As you look at the text, you see that he points to this idea of, of different ways that it's demonstrating itself. And it really starts with this idea of of slander, of evil speaking. It's, it's telling people things about each other that are meant to hurt them, right? And James doesn't tell us, hey, don't speak evil unless it's true. You know what I mean? If, if the evil that you're telling your fellow church member about Joe is, is true, by all means, spread it far, spread it wide, let the truth be known about Joe's evil to you. Right? He doesn't qualify it like that. He just says, do not speak evil of one another. We understand this concept very easily when it comes to, like, media, right? We, have, we hear of slander and libel, right? And what happens when somebody starts doing slanderous or libel-based news stories? What happens in Hollywood? Does the, the actor that's being slandered just sit back and go, you know, it'll, it'll all pan itself out, no. and the truth will come out, and I'll be vindicated? No. They lawyer up, right? And they go and they sue whatever the news media outlet is, and what happens? Typically, they, you know, settle outside of court for an undisclosed sum of money, right? We understand this is a concept that's bad. And yet James looks at the church and says, this is happening in your own midst. And it's a demonstration of worldly demonic wisdom. Why? Because worldly demonic wisdom demonstrates itself with bitter envy and selfish pursuits. And why would you want to slander somebody? The text seems to point us very clearly to the idea that the evil speech leads to judgmental thoughts about that individual. Right? Yeah. And so when you look at verse 11, he says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother judges his brother. What's the idea? The idea that he's communicating is your evil speech, the slander that your speech begins with, has a deeper goal, has a different root. You may not understand your motives for doing it. But he says, when you and I go around telling people, so-and-so did this, or so-and-so demonstrated his evil character in this way, or he hurt me by saying this, or you know what they did at this point, What you're doing is you're implanting ideas that are going to lead to people saying, and I don't really want to be with so-and-so. If they're like that, if, if, if they say things like that, I mean, what are they saying about me? 
And what happens? Ultimately, that person is judged. And what's the ultimate result of being judged? The ultimate result is that that person will be ostracized from the community. And, and so it ties in very closely with what he's done in first in the first few verses of chapter 4, right? Where do wars and fights come from? They come from my own passions, my own desires that war against the members. And so he says it demonstrates itself first just by slander, but the slander doesn't stop there. It can't stop there. The natural result of evil speaking, the natural result of slander taking place is that people will begin to form conclusions and ideas about the people that were slandering and they'll ultimately be ostracized from the community. And James says this is absolutely unacceptable within the body of Christ. That's what he's getting at. He's saying it's an absolute demonstration of worldly demonic wisdom and it has no place in the community of God that professes to seek after and pursue with their whole being heavenly, godly wisdom. It seeks first what? It seeks first peace and produces what? A harvest of righteousness. That's what he says at the end of chapter 3. And so he tells us, do not speak evil of one another, brother. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. That's where he's ultimately going. But as we, as we finish up this idea of using your tongue wisely, for you and I to use our tongue wisely, it means that we're going to be careful about what we say. Because what we say is going to impact what other people think or ultimately impact how we treat each other within the body of Christ. Going deeper than just what's physically seen, it's going to require that you and I ultimately also seriously examine our own thoughts and our motives and what we think about each other, right? Because where does sin come from? Sin comes from a conceived thought it gives birth to sin, which is the actual word spoken, the slander spoken, and it brings forth death, which is contrary to God's plan that the word of God would bring forth new life and would result in righteousness. And so as we think about all this, is your speech promoting peace and the fruit of righteousness? Because I, 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 I think as we wrap up verse 12. It's become very clear that the idea isn't simply a negative one, where we, we're not allowed to speak evil. And if we just don't speak evil, and we just stay neutral, we're okay. Now, I, haven't, I haven't disobeyed the negative command of don't touch the CD player. Now, I, I think that the, the concluding idea is he brings them in in verse 12, and as we look at the rest of the context of Scripture, concluding idea is that you and I must, you must have speech that demonstrates the character of God and directs people towards heavenly godly wisdom. So he says, use your tongue wisely. As he does that, he begins to point us to the danger that is present in foolish speech. And I, I believe what he's, what he's stating is that slander brings with it unintended consequences. And there's really, I believe, two consequences that he points us to in this passage. The first one I've already read. I'm going to read it again because it's kind of wrapping up verse 11. And then the second one is found in the beginning section of verse 12. But there's two consequences to our slanderous speech. 
The first one is this. Verse 11. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. What's it going to ultimately do? It's going to hurt people and it's going to have you judging the law. Standing in defiance to what God has instructed you. And then in verse 12, he says, there is one lawgiver. So ultimately, it's not you simply standing in, uh, in an assault position against the truth that has been given. It actually has you taking over the position of God. As you usurping God, taking God off his throne, and assuming that you can be the lawgiver and that you can be the judge. Those who participate in slander become judges then. Why? Because what I say, the evil speech that I communicate, will ultimately lead to people forming conclusions about other people. And as they form those conclusions, it will lead to a response to that person. What's that? Yeah, it puts you in God's seat. And so slanderers are not only judges of fellow believers, but are also judges of the law of God. Not only that, but slanderers are the resulting, and the resulting judgment puts us in opposite, at an impasse with our mission to be doers of the word. The two can't work together. We can't proclaim to be doers of the word Meanwhile, we go about slandering each other, which leads to judgment. And James doesn't even stop there. And Jesus doesn't stop there, right? When you read through Matthew chapter 5, Jesus addresses what? A lot about our thoughts and our, our way we think about different situations, right? He effectively says that if you hate your brother, it's as bad as murdering your brother, right? And James, I think, is trying to communicate the same thing. It's not okay for us just to have the thoughts in our head, but not to physically speak them. The desire of God's word is that we root out even the thoughts of malice toward one another. Slander and judgment seek to dethrone God. They seek to take God off his rightful throne. And so how do we live wisely now? I think the key to living wisely is knowing God. James is assuming this is slander in all situations, right? And, and I'm not proposing, and I don't think James is proposing, that you and I look at sin or some evil that somebody is doing, and we just go, you know, I'm not going to speak evil about that. It's, it's okay if they do that. They do them, I'll do me, and we'll all just kind of... It all pan out in the end. James doesn't allow us to do that, right? Because he's continuously calling us to be doers of the word. He's continuously calling us to encourage one another. So how do we live wisely? What does this look like with one another? And I, I think as he develops how we live wisely, how we use wise speech, he points us to the character of God. And as we understand and we grow in our knowledge and our love of God, 
it equips us so that we can have situations where maybe we have evil thoughts, but there's nothing evil to have an evil thought about, right? Huh. Or maybe we have something that we know about them that's evil, and yet we can use that knowledge in a way that is constructive and instructive and helps them to grow and helps the whole body of Christ to grow and become more like God. And so what, what character of God does he point us to in verse 12? He points us really to two different aspects of God's character, two different responsibilities that God has. And I think as we meditate upon those character traits of God and what God does on our behalf, it should encourage us and strengthen us as we relate to one another. And so, live wisely knowing God. We'll start once again in verse 12, and then we will continue through. He says, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge one another? What he does right here is he cuts it off, right? He cuts the pattern off. He's like, you can't continue this pattern. That's what the question at the end of verse 12 is getting at. Who are you to judge? But the question is based on something, right? There's a theological groundwork upon which he builds this conclusion. James loves questions. If you ever think, you know, I need to work better on how do I ask good questions with other believers so that I can, you know, better equip them and better instruct them, just read through James a couple times. Like, he's constantly asking good questions that make us really go, oh, he's... he's He's not talking about you. He's, he's talking about me. Thanks, James. Okay. James is really good at that. So he asks questions, and his co questions have like conclusions built into them, right? Who are you to judge one another? The idea is you can't go about slandering people that leads to judgment. There's a better way to do this. So as we grow in our pursuit of heavenly wisdom, we draw. We need to grow in our knowledge and love of God. And specifically, he tells us that there is only one lawgiver, and he alone is to judge. That's the conclusion that I believe you're supposed to draw from, this idea that there is only one lawgiver. But he goes on from there, right? And he tells us because God is righteous, he alone can save the repentant. That should be of great encouragement to you and I, right? Because every one of us has needed God's salvation. And if you say, you know, I haven't ever needed God's salvation, then you're in current need of God's salvation. And we actually need God's salvation, in a sense, on a daily basis. There's the, the, the first occurrence of salvation wherein I realize I am a sinner. My pursuits are often selfish. I envy other people. It's a demonstration that I'm on the world's path. That's how every single one of us are born. We're on that path. We're pursuing worldly, demonic wisdom. And yet God, in his great grace, chose not to condemn the world, but he chose instead to demonstrate his grace to the world by sending his son to come and die for your sins and for my sins. But if I say I'm insufficient in my own abilities, I need God's forgiveness. He not only grants us forgiveness, he also provides us with his righteousness. He makes us righteous through him. 
gives us Christ's righteousness. But then, even after I come to Christ in salvation, what happens? I still sin. And I still have to come before God and, and seek his forgiveness and receive once again his forgiveness. Not so that I'm saved once again, but so that we're restored, that we're reconciled in our relationship. But he goes on. He doesn't simply say that God is the one who saves and provides us with ultimate hope for eternal life, ultimate hope for today to live more closely in alignment with God in greater dependence upon his spirits, in greater dependence upon his son. He doesn't simply say that. He, he points us to another aspect of God's character. He elevates the character of God as is seen in his holiness and his justice and his mercy and his love in saving us. But he also does the other thing as well. He points us to the fact that God, yes, does have salvation. He is a loving God. He is a merciful God. He's willing to demonstrate his grace to those who are repentant. But God is also one who destroys, right? The text points us to two truths. God's salvation and God's judgment. A hope-filled truth and a scary truth for those who are not right with God. And, and so he points us to the second idea of God's character. And so he says, because God is righteous, he alone can destroy the unrepentant. And so God has salvation to offer. And if you choose to reject his salvation, the only other alternative is his destruction. It's kind of a weird situation at first glance to include these awesome truths about who our God is and his character, right? When we're talking about how we relate to other believers and now all of a sudden our theological system says that a believer cannot lose their salvation and then he's throwing in all these ideas about salvation and destruction. And, and so what is, he, what is he doing? I think he's pointing us to the character of God. And ultimately, because God is the one who saves and God is the one who destroys, what do you and I do as we see somebody who is actually living in evil? And we have a desire to speak slanderously about them to one another. The solution, the path forward for dealing with somebody who's living in sin is not for me to go to everybody else in the church and say, did you know what so-and-so said about me? Do you know where so-and-so was last Thursday night at, you know, 7.53? That's not the solution that's been given to us. That's not the plan that's been given to us. The plan instead is speaking the truth in... Love. As we speak the truth in love, we, we comfort, we exhort, we rebuke, we encourage one another in all patience. And we, we build up the body of Christ. That's the plan that's been given to us. And so instead of speaking slanderously about the evil of other people, he calls us instead to point people to the character of God to remind them who God is and as they see the character of God as they see the love and the, the wrath of God 
The result is that that evil person should be encouraged to live godly toward Christ Jesus. And as you consider yourself a judge, you're also supposed to what? We're reminded. God is the one who saved me. Now, if I choose to pursue this path of worldly demonic wisdom and fail to submit myself to God's plan for how the church is to operate in unity and mutual encouragement and love, what happens? God is the one who destroys. Not by taking away your salvation. But God can bring trials into your life to judge you. God can, and he does tell us that he does sometimes bring early death upon some people. Why? Because of their failure to submit to him and follow him in godly wisdom. And so the passage provides hope for the person who struggles with their tongue and who struggles with their thoughts about other believers, whether those thoughts are true or untrue. But the passage should also encourage those who we see who are pursuing a path of evil. We can point them to the fact that God is one who saves and has a desire to help you grow and become more like him. And if you choose to disobey him and persist in this pattern, God is one who will bring destruction because he is the ultimate lawgiver. He is the one who can judge. And every time he judges, he does so righteously. So because God is righteous, he alone can destroy the unrepentance. God is holy, righteous, and just. So we trust him to accomplish his purpose. And his purpose is that instead of us rebuking him, you and I would humbly go to people we see pursuing sin. Whether it's some sin that's being slandered or a person who may be slandering someone. And we confront their sin. We point them to Christ. We point them to the character of God. We do so patiently. Equipped with the word of God with patience. And the, the result is that the person is supposed to grow. When the person fails to grow, there's another plan that we've been given, right? The other plan is the path of Matthew chapter 18, where when somebody who is confronted with the truth of God's word and fails to submit themselves, and there's a pattern of disobedience, you've been patient with the person as first Thessalonians chapter 5 instructs, then we remove them from membership. But the goal is never that we would slander people so that people would just ostracize this person without seeking to help them. No, the goal is always that we would seek to love somebody, faithfully bring them back to fellowship. Bring them to the point where they can then also mutually encourage us with loving, edifying words. Speech that is not evil, but that is good and purposeful and loving. And so th that's, that's the plan that God has given us, and it's based in his character. And, and so you see how the, the plan is not simply do not speak evil. It's not just a negative command. When you and I see evil, we can choose to slander it. That's against the pattern of Scripture. The plan that's in accordance with Scripture is that you and I would go to the person personally, confront the sin, and seek to help them grow in Christ's likeness. 
And so the plan, it's not simply negatively stated, do not speak evil, stay neutral, let the pastor go and do everything. Okay, the pastor should probably know at some point if you know, they're being evil and they're not unwilling to change, you're going to bring the pastor in there someplace, okay? Maybe not on the first day, but at some point you're going to try and bring the pastor in. But it's not okay to just say, well, I'm not going to say anything. Instead, there's a responsibility to continue speaking. He's simply addressing how we speak. And how we speak cannot be in a way that is evil. Rather, it must be in alignment with the character of God, which calls upon us to lovingly confront, exhort, and encourage one another towards Christ-likeness. And so as we... As we conclude, here are a few ideas that I think are drawn from the text. Evil speech betrays us by portraying our hearts. Where does slander come from? It comes from my desire to be seen in a better light. That's where it comes from. And he says it portrays the attitude that's seen in James chapter 3. Bitter envy and selfish ambition. It betrays the same attitude that the pursuits of my own passions that breeds wars and fights among us. When you and I choose to engage in a slander campaign against somebody else here, whether true or untrue, it doesn't matter. James doesn't give you the opportunity to say, well, it was true. Well, if it's true, you have other responsibilities as a believer. portrays something about your heart and portrays something about you that James has said needs to be addressed because it's a demonstration of worldly demonic wisdom. Evil speech should not be found in the believing community. If you look at the passage in verse 11, he says one another. Verse 12 says another. And he uses the word brother or brethren, I believe at least two times. He's talking about the local church. There's implications for how you treat your neighbors, how you treat your coworkers, but the primary application that James is concerned about is how the church relates to one another. And if you've been a part of church long enough, or a part of enough churches, you'll know that this is a problem that is all too common within churches. How we speak to one another. It's easier for us to cut others down and build ourselves up by demonstrating their sin than it is for us to follow the biblical commands and seek to encourage and instruct and build up one another. Evil thoughts must be rooted out as well. Because the thoughts is what gives birth to sin, James chapter 1 tells us, and the sin will bring forth death. It is the natural consequence every single time, given enough time. The thought will not stay as a thought. Right? That's what happens with pregnancies. The natural response of conceived baby is a baby will be born. That's what happens. Okay? If that doesn't happen, something very unnatural, something very sad has happened. The natural result of a conception is a baby is born. The natural result of a baby being born is the baby grows up and eventually dies. The same thing is true about your thoughts and my thoughts. The natural result of a thought being born or being conceived is it will be seen, will become evident in our actions and our life. And its natural result is death. 
Evil speech breeds disunity and usurps God's place. Evil speech is overcome by knowing, loving, and trusting God in his good plan. See, it all boils down to the big idea that James is trying to communicate to us, isn't it? Your faith works. He's asking you to do what? To trust God as the perfect, just, righteous lawgiver who will deal with what is wrong. He'll deal with the evil that you and I see. And he even invites you and I into his plan to deal with it. It's your responsibility, it's my responsibility to embrace the plan that God has given us. To trust his plan that it works and to go and to confront evil speech. It's your responsibility, it's my responsibility to go and confront evil behavior. And as we do so, our, our speech is not characterized by evil Rather, our speech will be characterized by love and good works. It will produce peace and a harvest of righteousness. Every time faith works itself out in true works, it produces peace and it produces a harvest of righteousness. And so how do we, how do we live? What are some things that you and I can practically do this week to seek to apply some of these truths that you know, we gather from the rather larger context, and specifically these two verses. I think it's important for you and I to examine our thoughts and our actions for conformity to God's standards. Maybe, maybe you know, you pick up one of the prayer sheets at the bottom of the stairs, and you take it home, pray for them, okay? Do that part. But as you pray for them, when you see the various names, what thoughts initially come to your head? Positive, negative? If there's current sin that frustrates you or something that is frustrating to you about that individual, can love cover that? Or does it rise to the occasion where you need to go and biblically confront that sin? Maybe you, you, you're a little overwhelmed by that. Maybe you ask somebody that you know, that you trust, and ask them, hey, I, I'm thinking through this, and I'm not sure my thoughts or my actions demonstrate these type of attitudes. You know me pretty well. Has my speech ever demonstrated this kind of evil speaking, slanderous behavior that leads to judgment? Who was that evil speech directed towards? Who was I seeking to slander? Who was I seeking to cut down as I build myself up at their own expense? And as we do that, then we, we do what? We, we seek to repent and we, we turn to Christ and we depend upon him for genuine, real change. We depend upon Christ by being in his word, by fellowshipping with other believers, by reminding ourselves of the truth of the gospel, that Christ died, was buried, that he rose again. And as I profess my faith in his finished work, I too have died to self. And I have been raised to walk a brand new life. That's the gospel. That's what we remind ourselves of. That's what we seek to live out and preach with our actions. 
when I think we finally meditate upon and we rejoice in the character and sufficient plan of God. Ultimately, what James does is he says, look at the character of God. Does God's character not take care of this? Yes. And the answer is a resounding yes. Why? Because God is the one who alone can save. God is the only one who can destroy. And as he works out that plan, he wants you to be included, but not through slander. Not through breeding judgmental thoughts in one another, but through personally going and lovingly confronting sin. So that the body of Christ is pure and more like Jesus Christ. That's what we've been entrusted to do. That's not simply a negative command, do not speak evil to one another. It's a positive idea. You and I have been entrusted with the gospel. Not simply for our own day-to-day -day lives. But all the more as we see the day of Christ coming, it's imperative that you and I depend upon one another to encourage, to rebuke, to strengthen us so that we live faithful, godly lives in this present age. Father, we do thank you for your wisdom. We thank you that it is, it is true, that it brings about wonderful results. It brings about peace brings about a harvest of righteousness. We pray that as we humbly submit ourselves to your plan of godly wisdom, and that as we forsake our own selfish ambition, as we forsake the bitter envy that so easily creeps up in our own hearts, that you would help us to grow as a church to become more like you. Help us to grow individually and become more like your son. We thank you and praise you for your salvation and the fact that you provide us with constant guidance and care in its life. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right.